You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Okay, Molly, see this donut? Yeah, it looks great. It looks delicious. Well, I could eat this now, and it would be delicious. I could even eat one every day this week, maybe every day this month, and I might be okay. But with time... You'd gain a lot of weight. Is this your new diet plan? Well, Seth? not not exactly, but it would be true that I'd be at greater risk for being overweight or even for diabetes. The point is, what we do now has an impact on our future, but sometimes we don't see those results right away. Sometimes they just kind of creep up on us. Kind of like the pounds do. Yeah, well... Okay. And and frankly, most of the things that ordinary humans worry about have a near-term impact on our future and a long-term impact, too. What's considered long-term? Well, generations down the road. I mean, the gases we pump into the atmosphere, the fossil fuels we haul out of the ground, they could be affecting us a couple of generations hence. Oh, you're talking about climate change. Sure I am. But when I talk about consequences, I'm not only referring to climate change. The medical research we do, advances in computing, just a better understanding of physics may lead to revolutionary breakthroughs in the future. But what time scale are we talking about? 100 years into the future? A 1,000 years? Well, there are some things we're doing now that undoubtedly have consequences a millennium from now. Producing radioactive wastes comes to mind. But we don't really know what the human legacy will be on those timescales. You're right, not even approximately, although there are a couple of broad scenarios. We could imagine an optimistic future. A multicultural, knowledge-driven, space-exploring, peaceful utopia, or... A sterile wasteland of evaporated lakes, choking smog, endless heaps of scrap plastic. Who knows? Crystal ball's not always crystalline. Well, I know which one I would vote for. Well, yeah, but do you want to wear all that stretch lycra? The point is, there are consequences tomorrow for our actions today. And given our current trajectory, we can at least try to imagine what the world might be like three or even 30 generations from now. Okay, let's take three generations from now. That's what, 100 years? What do you think the planet might be like then? Well, that's a question worth exploring. So let's do so. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. And on Are We Alone? We're going to look at this idea. What will be lost and what will last a century from now? Okay, I don't have a time machine, Molly. Maybe I'll work on that some free weekend. But for now, we have to settle for a dream machine. Well, here's our first stop, Molly. Oh, it's a busy downtown. Got a lot of people, a lot of people. Cars look funny. They're smaller, and I don't see any tailpipes. Wow, these fashions are weird. Where yep. are we? <laughs> We're in Canada. We're in downtown Edmonton in Alberta. Uh, watch out for the maglev track over there. Edmonton? 
I always knew it was a decent sized city of maybe 750,000 people or so, but this looks much bigger than that. I mean, those office buildings extend all the way to the horizon. Uh, um, Molly, let me show you something. Uh, excuse me, ma'am, uh, what's the current population of Edmonton? Let's see, about 84 million. 84 million of Edmonton? That's that's the population of New York, New Jersey, and California combined. Really? Population of what? Lizards? What other residents are you going to have in a near desert? Where are you from, anyway? Gotta run. Well, she's right, Molly. I mean, our dream machine has taken us to the year 2110. The National Amphibian Refuge Park makes up most of America's eastern seaboard now. If we had the time, we should really check it out. I mean, I find the iguanas impressive. Most people just left the arid south for the temperate north, Canada. This is our future? Well, maybe. We can't be sure of anything, Molly, but it is a scenario envisioned by scientist James Lovelock back in the 21st century, minus the lizards. Dr. Lovelock is the one who proposed the Gaia hypothesis that Earth functions as a complex superorganism. He also warned us about climate change. When I spoke with him, he thought there was little we could do to avoid it, even if we stopped the hemming and hawing. He said that by the year 2100, 80% of humans would be gone. Others would be forced to migrate to cooler climes. Jim, if humans continue on the trajectory that we find ourselves on now, without change, uh, what sort of world are we going to leave behind in a couple of decades' time? A pretty awful world. It'll probably be like the world of 55 million years ago, when most life was up at the North Pole and the uh, Arctic Ocean regions. A few islands and oases, there'll be people, but it'll be a rough desert world. Well, let's consider a shorter time interval. For example, suppose an alien visited our planet in 1950. They looked around, they did a survey of the life on our world, and then they returned 100 years later, 2050. What would they see? What would that report be like in terms of the differences that had occurred in that 100 years? Goodness, they'd be huge, I think. I'm a scientist, so I can't be certain about anything. But I think many Americans would have moved to Canada, for starters, because it's so much cooler up there. I think... They would be driven up there, not so much only by the heat, although that would be excessive, but also because there'd be very little food grown down here. It would tend to become like the Dust Bowl was long, long ago. And this would be true of most parts of the world. Well, these are fairly somber predictions. You clearly believe that we're on an unrecoverable trajectory of climate change, uh, that climate change at this point is actually irreversible. Why, why do you say that? Because what's happening now is the Earth is driving climate change. We're rather like someone who pulled the trigger on a gun accidentally and fired it. You can't bring the bullet back. What we, do, what we did uh, was unintentional. And uh, we now have to, unfortunately, take the consequences. But, but that sounds as if we're on a runaway train. And after all, environmentalism, that's what all the kids are interested in. Everybody's taking uh, climate change seriously. I drove up here today. The back of the bus in front of me said I'm a green bus. I, I don't know if it really was. But uh, we're beginning to take this problem to heart. Why can't we be successful in halting climate change? I think it's worth trying because I could be wrong, couldn't I, uh, <laughs> Seth? But I, I think it's out of our hands now. The Earth is changing in its own way. You, you see the melting of the Arctic ice that took place a few years ago, huge areas of it, is adding more heat to the Earth than we're adding, or, or nearly as much. And other things that are happening to the Earth are adding more heat than we're doing. 
and uh, our, our input is becoming smaller and smaller in, to, in, in the total effect. So it's out of our hands. We're, we're, we're really like King Canute here, trying to stop the tide. Exactly. Yeah. Well, he at least was clever enough to realize he couldn't do it. Well, once this tipping point comes, uh, the climate does change. It's How- come. It's come, but but you know, I think most people would say, well, I I'm not sure that I notice it yet because all these scientists are telling me that uh, there's global warming. But you know, last winter was the worst on record for you know decades and so forth. So it's clearly not something that at a qualitative level people notice. How fast is this going to change in the future? Well, there's a world thermometer which is very very reliable, and you can go to it on Google. <laughs> that's that's just the sea level. You see, the sea expands just like a thermometer does, uh, and it tells how much heat the Earth has absorbed. You can go to Google and it's rising, it's rising, it's rising. You may get a cold year, you may get ice unexpectedly somewhere, but what really matters is how much heat the ocean absorbs. And when it absorbs heat like any thermometer, it expands. Not only that, but as ice melts on the glaciers, that adds to the ocean, so that makes it expand. So there's the true thermometer of the Earth. If you want to know what's really happening, just look at the sea level. But does this ever become, uh, as it were, non-linear? I mean, uh, we overwork the word exponential today, but you know, for a scientist, exponential actually means something, that the, the change is increasing, the rate of change is increasing. Is that going to happen? I mean, is it going to be you know, really catastrophic? The Earth in its history doesn't change smoothly and steadily. It's much more like the slope of a mountain a lot of foothills going up and down and then maybe a deep valley that goes quite low. But eventually it gets to the top. It's not like a highway that engineers have smoothed out. And so we've got to expect jumps. You believe that a large portion of the human population will not survive this. I mean, we think of ourselves as being very adaptable because we have technology to aid us. Who's, who's going to be hit the hardest in terms of the human population? Well, in general, those that are hit hardest will those that, that say oh, nothing's happening, I don't have to move, we'll be all right where we are. The ones that will survive, well, those that, you know, begin to get a little fearful and say, it's time we we move and pick up their whole family and migrate to somewhere like Canada or one of the place that, places where the climate's going to be tolerable. Have you checked with the Canadians about this? Are they uh, willing to open their arms for us? Uh, I've spoken to quite a few. I mean, I'm not assuming you're going to invade it in a military <laughs> way. It's going to be um, buying the land there, isn't it? Well, is there anything we can do? Is there any glimmer of hope here? Can we slow this down or, or reverse it? There's one glimmer of hope just around the corner. Firstly, I think some people in this region are working on it, and that's just producing low-level clouds on the ocean. They'll reflect back sunlight and do have a real potential for cooling the Earth. If they do this, it buys us some time. It's not a cure. But if during that time we then pick up another idea, which came from a guy in New York, Johannes Lehmann, that we get farmers to take all their waste, ag- agricultural waste, and turn it to charcoal and either bury it in their fields, just plough it back, or, or in the ocean, then we can take carbon dioxide massively out of the air. And that'll get us some way back to where we were. I'm talking with independent scientist James Lovelock. If I may, I, I believe you're 90 years old now, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Well, some would say that you've become more apocalyptic with age. Is that because the data warrant that apocalyptic vision more now than they did before? Or 
do you think that pessimism might just be, you know, riding the coattails of getting older? I'm not pessimistic in the least. I'm highly optimistic. And indeed, I'm hoping to go up in space and look at the Earth uh, either this year or next year. That's hardly the act of a pessimist. Richard Branson has offered <laughs> yeah, you a ride, hasn't he? That's right. He has. When do you go? Uh, I don't know. When, whenever the vehicle's ready. I've read that you're a fan of science fiction, especially H.G. Wells, uh, that you read that as a boy. And he had, of course, some end-of-the-world scenarios, the uh, War of the Worlds, uh, most famously, I suppose. Have those stories influenced your way of thinking? Uh, they have, of course, because they're wonderful entertainment, and uh, entertainment and reality merge in some ways. But I'm not a doomsayer. I have a good track record of opposing most doom stories, I didn't believe that the ozone depletion affair was anywhere near as serious uh, as people thought and said so at the time and said they should be spending more time looking at the carbon dioxide increase. That was much more serious than the ozone depletion. And I stick by that. So, no, I, I'm not a natural doomsayer. What about geoengineering? I'm thinking, you know, the sun dumps about 10 to the 17th watts on the Earth. And, you know, all of humanity runs at one ten thousandth of that or more or less. So if if you just had a, you know, a big sunblock up in orbit that's, you know, only 100 miles across, it would block all the equivalent amount of energy that we use, including all our cars, our trucks, our, you know, iPhones, whatever. I mean, isn't something like that possible to, to really solve the problem here? Well, there's a scientist at Lawrence Livermore, I think, Lowell Wood, uh, who has suggested just doing just that, putting a sunshade out in space to deflect sunlight. But I don't know personally how practical and economic such an idea would be, nor how politically sound it is. After all, other nations might say, if you do that, you're, you're, you're going to favour yourself and not us, or even use it as a weapon. But there are geoengineering projects, and the one I mentioned, of putting clouds across the ocean surface, is one. Another one is to put an aerosol up in the stratosphere and mimic the action of a volcano. They both look as possible candidates for cooling off the earth a bit, but they only buy time. It look at them rather like when your kidneys fail, you can go on dialysis. It buys you some time, but it's not a cure. I heard James Hansen speak a couple of months ago, and the, the take-home message from his talk was, coal is the problem. Burning coal, the way we burn coal is the problem. Couldn't we solve that problem by just going to, you know, solar collectors in space or something and beam the energy down? I mean, isn't there a way around the coal problem? The problem is lack of time. I talked with James Rogers some time ago, who's deep into coal industry and sympathetic to our needs. But you can't just turn it off. People's electricity supplies throughout the world depend on burning coal. And if you turn off electricity to a city like San Francisco, for example, it dies within a week. It's just total disaster. Jim, by 2100, you figure there are going to be a lot fewer humans inhabiting this planet. Which ones are going to make it? The ones that get up and go. And nobody knows who they'll be at this time. That's the interesting thing. But it's happened seven times during the last million years, this sort of event. And on one occasion way back, in a jump in temperature between the ice ages and the interglacials, the number of humans left dropped to a mere 2,000. This has been discovered from the uh, genome, the human genome. Uh, there was a period when there were as few as that. And uh, so 
If we've survived through all of those events, we're going to survive through this one up ahead. But we may be cut back pretty severely. Do you, do you think we'll make that selection ourselves or is that just going to be made for us? I hope we don't try to make it ourselves. I don't think we're clever enough to do so. James Lovelock, thank you very much for speaking with me. Thank you, Seth. James Lovelock is an independent scientist and the author of The Vanishing Face of Gaia, A Final Warning. We're wandering the 22nd century on Are We Alone? Find out more of what will last and what could be lost a hundred years from now. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Welcome back to Are We Alone? as we contemplate the state of the planet 100 years from now. Now, as I was saying, Molly, we can't know for sure what things will be like, but James Lovelock painted one picture if we stay on our current trajectory, but there's more to that scenario. Mm, not sure I want to know. Uh, but first, let's grab something to eat. Oh, there's a vendor selling, let's see, what is that? Wheat dogs? Want one? Wheat dog? Okay. All right, and let's see, we can have some wheat fries and wheat slaw with that. Want something to drink? Uh, sure. Okay, well, we can have wheat beer. What do you know? Okay, I, I'll bite, maybe not into this wheat dog. Why so much wheat? Well, because we weren't in time to save all the other varieties of crops. Remember rice, hops, rye, chickpea, coconut, yams, carrots, strawberries, sunflower, barley, eggplant, and potato? Remember any of that? Agriculture depends, or dependent, on only a few crops, yes, but there was vast diversity within any crop. Crop diversity is the biological basis of farming. Was. That's why Kerry Fowler started the Global Crop Diversity Trust and built a seed bank in the Arctic in the 21st century to preserve crop diversity against changes to the environment. Only, well, we didn't respond as we should, at least in this dream scenario. But we do have wheat in the 22nd century. You want a bite of my one-grain bread? But Seth, why would climate change have affected the total food supply here in the 22nd century? Wouldn't the growing season just move further north? We will not be moving the, the varieties farther north, chasing temperatures, for example, um, because when you move a variety from one place to another, 
you're altering the photo period, the seasonality of light, which affects the dormancy and the uh, germination of the seed. You're getting into different patterns of, of sunlight, of rainfall, quantities of rain, soil, pests, and diseases. So to adapt to climate change, we're going to have to have crops that are adapted to climate change, and that's a completely different uh, climate regime than they have experienced since the Neolithic times. Okay, you say that diversity in this case, as it so often does, I suppose, in the, the biological realm, uh, can save us from changing conditions. Our environment changes, diversity has some troops ready to go to come in and take whatever field is available to them. Well, that's right. I mean, I challenge people to think about how human beings are going to adapt to climate change if agriculture doesn't. And how is agriculture going to adapt to climate change if crops don't? And how do crops adapt? Well, we know how crops adapt. They adapt by using the variability that exists within the, the uh, gene pool of, a, of an individual crop. So if we want crops that are more heat resistant uh, than today, then we're going to have to find the variability that exists naturally in some of the old varieties of those particular crops. I mean, we're facing a situation where the normal range of temperatures in a growing season in the future won't even overlap with what it was in the past. In other words, the hottest years of the past and the growing seasons are in the future going to be colder than the coldest. Okay, so diversity is really essential for our survival. Now, I would assume that there are diverse varieties of, say, rice or wheat or some of these other things out there. Do we need any specific intervention here, or is this a problem that will solve itself because the farmers will buy other varieties of seed and, and uh, adapt to these circumstances? Well, the farmers will try to buy other varieties, but the question is, where do those varieties come from, and do we have the raw materials for making them? There are probably 200,000 different varieties of wheat. There are about 400 breeds of dogs, by the way, but 200,000 varieties of wheat and maybe 400,000 varieties of rice. And you could ask yourself, well, why do we need all these? And there are a couple answers to that question. The first is, well, that contains all the diversity, all the colors on the palette that the plant breeders are going to be able to use to create new varieties in the future. And we don't have a good enough crystal ball to know exactly which trait we're going to need in the future. So it behooves us to save all the pieces. And in this case, what it means is saving samples of the 200,000 varieties of wheat. And fortunately, that's a pretty easy thing to do, and it's a pretty cheap thing to do. But if we don't do it, we will have lost permanently um, any of the options, biological options, that those varieties might contain. So again, if we want an agricultural system that produces more food, produces it using less water, less energy, is adapted to new climates, is adapted to the next pest and disease, then we have to take care to conserve the biological foundation of agriculture, which is all of these different varieties. You've mentioned wheat, and of course everybody can relate to wheat, but what are some of the other crops that are threatened? Well, you, you could in a way say that all of the major crops are threatened because I, mean, I think the central question to be asking these days is, are we ready? And in particular, is agriculture ready? And the answer to that question is no, we're not ready. Ready for what? Ready for climate change? Ready for the next challenge that comes down the road? We could get ready, but we're not there yet. So when you look at, when you look at a crop like rice, this most important food crop in the world, imagine this. The studies indicate that a, just a one degree rise in nighttime temperature during the flowering period for rice results in a 10% decrease in yield. 
many of the climate change scenarios now are not not any longer talking about just a one degree rise in temperature. If we have a 10% decline in rice production, the most important food crop in the world, we're in a serious trouble. So many of our crops, uh, we, we have the ability to work our way out of this. I don't want to paint a doom and gloom scenario, but we do have to get started because we're going to have to have crops that are adapted to changes that are as, coming as soon as 20 years from now. And for most of our major crops, it takes 10 years to breed a new variety. So you can imagine that we're about two breeding cycles away from needing to have climate-ready crops in the field. When you talk about doing things, intervention, I mean, when there are 400,000 varieties of wheat, I mean, a farmer can't just go down to the local seed store and look over 400,000 packets and decide which one to do. How are we going to approach this problem? How do you preserve this diversity and make it accessible to uh, future farmers? Um, much of the diversity has been already collected and is being stored in seed banks. Seed banks are a glorified name for freezers. Uh, if you want to conserve seed for the long term, you dry it to a low moisture content and you freeze it. And there it's available. It can be taken out when a researcher or plant breeder needs it. So if you have a good information system, a plant breeder will come along and say, well, I want to breed a new rice variety that's more heat resistant than the ones that are already in the farmer's fields. And that plant breeder will search through the collections of rice, the couple hundred thousand varieties that we have, and find the varieties that offer that heat resistance and use it in a breeding program. But that's how it works on paper. How it works in reality is that many of these seed banks are uh, in dire financial straits. They're vulnerable to equipment failures and mismanagement and natural disasters and war and civil strife. So the bottom line is that we're losing diversity every day. Not losing it like you lose your car keys. Losing it like extinction. And uh, losing the ability to use any unique traits in the future. And we're losing it because bad things happen to seed banks. So this is simply a luxury we can't afford anymore. So one of the things we're doing uh, where I work at the Global Crop Diversity Trust is to put together a global system for conserving this diversity made up of, of uh, key seed banks around the world and then backed up a safety net, an insurance policy uh, with the Svalbard Global Seed Vault uh, near the North Pole where we're storing a safety duplicate copy of all this diversity inside a mountain in permafrost conditions. You're actually storing the seeds, of course. And how, how many seeds does it take to adequately protect a species? Because I suppose that not all of them are going to germinate if you had to bring back this particular variety over here. Uh, how, how many seeds are we talking about here? We typically will conserve about 500 seeds per sample. So we have now in the seed vault, or at least later this month, we'll have about 400,000 unique varieties times 500 seeds. Now, you know, this is more than just having variety and the kind of veggies I'm going to have for dinner 20, 30 years from now, right? We're talking about really, I mean, this is essential to survive. This is a, this is a big problem. It's, uh, I think it's the world's biggest problem, and this is the world's most important natural resource, at least for us. This is the biological foundation of agriculture, so I applaud everyone else who's working on climate change and all the other problems, but this is one we have to solve. If we don't solve this one, we don't get a chance to solve any of the others. Just a speculative question. 
having identified this problem, having realized that diversity is important, do you s foresee a time in the future where we'll simply sequence all the uh, the genomes of the various crops that we're interested in and, and save all the stuff digitally and you won't have to dig holes in the mountains of Spitsbergen and you know put the seeds in there um, personally I don't think so uh, genes are linked and traits are linked and we it's a pretty complex business but if it happens I'll be happy I want a good outcome for agriculture however we get it this is okay with me Carrie Fowler thank you so much thank you Carrie Fowler is the executive director of the Global Crop Diversity Trust. It's pretty sobering, Seth. When we peek into the future, we've lost so much. I guess that's humanity's legacy. Well, wait a minute, Molly. That's one scenario. But this isn't the only future that could play out. Maybe we've changed the climate irreversibly, and yes, that's worrisome. But, you know, you really shouldn't lose sight of the big picture here. Come on, let's take another trip. Oh, not into the future again. I'm not sure I want to see it. No, not the future, no. But Seth, this looks like downtown Mountain View, California, today. Well, well it is, Molly. Anyway, let's sit down here, over here. What do you see? Well, let's see. There's some music playing. There's some people walking down the street. Yeah, but what, what about over there? Oh, some cars, this cafe. Right. Everybody looks pretty happy, right? You don't see giant sores on people, do you? Sores? No, I don't see giant sores. Right, not, not half the people aren't crippled by injury hobbled by disease, starving, right? Right. Okay, that seems normal to you, at least for this part of California. But had you lived at the height of the Roman Empire almost 2,000 years ago, you'd be dead by now. Are you over 35? Well... Okay, you'd be dead by now. Okay, okay, I get your point. We have modern medicine, so humanity redeems itself with science. Is yeah, that it? That's right, but that's not trivial, Molly. I mean, take antibiotics, and occasionally you probably do. One of the great discoveries of our time, of any time, if the bubonic plague strikes today, here in downtown Mountain View, we've got antibiotics. Europeans in the 14th century, they just weren't as lucky, and millions died. But there's more. In Roman times, this street scene, a third of the people walking around here would be slaves, and there'd be no sewer system. I don't know if you care about that. Or what about the water you drink? You'd be lucky to have a change of clothes. You'd be fortunate to maybe once a month or two take your moth-eaten toga and rinse it out in the Tiber. <laughs> and most people had the privilege of facing a lifetime of back-breaking work. And true, there was no pollution or emission from cars, but back then, if you wanted to go anywhere, you supplied the motive power. You did the work. That transportation was you, your two feet. But, but Seth, that's still true in the majority of the world, and it's not as though we've wiped disease off the surface of the planet. Many people still suffer horribly from malaria, from HIV. Well, that's true, but, but there are fewer people suffering today. I mean, the, the lifespans today, on average, for everyone are much, much longer than they were in antiquity. But bear with me a little bit, Molly. Look over there. You see those people going into the bookstores? You know why? I assume to buy books yeah. or magazines. Well, that's because they can read. I mean, in ancient Egypt, I doubt that 1% of the population could read. 2,000 years before Egypt, life was even more primitive. And, and never mind literacy. I mean, throughout 95% of the history of Homo sapiens, we didn't even have agriculture. Now, you had to find your dinner growing on a bush somewhere. Sort of like Bush Street in San Francisco, right? That's a great street for restaurants. No, okay, I see what you're saying, that humans have contributed a lot with their science and with their ingenuity. But what does that mean in terms of the human legacy a century from now? Where is all this taking us? Well, what I'm trying to say is that human good outweighs the bad. I mean, I think that the trend of improvement, that progress, based on science, technology, that that's going to continue. Not all species do that. I mean, the last generation of the dinosaurs wasn't any more interesting than the first generation of dinosaurs. The last one didn't add anything. They didn't leave anything to their descendants. 
I mean, dino literature, singularly missing from our pantheon of great works. But it's all about humans. It's all about what humans can do for ourselves to better ourselves and not about what we can do for the planet. Well, but keep in mind that the planet is agnostic, Molly. The planet doesn't care what we do. I mean, you know, for four billion years there's been life on the planet. The planet's undergone tremendous catastrophe. It's still here. The life was still there. The planet's going to be around a long time after us. Some do care about the health of the planet, Seth. And if we do mess up this planet, maybe humans won't even be around a century from now. Well, that's something to think about indeed, but I'm not really worried. I think we can save ourselves. So, again, all of this is speculation. But given the evidence so far, 200,000 years of human evolution, Molly, I think we're going to be around. Well, we'll talk to someone who agrees with you, Seth, that humans will be around 100 years from now. Only will we recognize them as human. It's Are We Alone? Science Radio for thinking and enduring species on any world. Are you receiving this transmission, THX 1139? Affirmative. It is my favorite radio show from the pre-AI era. Remember radio? Of course not. Radio seems like an inefficient means of communicating, but it is fun to listen to these old programs. It is hard to imagine when the only intelligence was protoplasmic. What is that? Soft, squishy chemical cells or something. Oh, I get protoplasmic mixed up with photosynthesis. Is it the same? Negative. One is for animal life and the other for furniture, I think. Hey, how did your memory upgrade go? I added 5 trillion terabytes just last week, knowing the location and momentum of every molecule in the Orion Nebula has gotten me out of a jam once or twice. Also, I never misplace my keys now. The hosts of this radio show in this episode were trying to predict the future of the planet. Back then, they were very concerned about rising temperatures. I guess they cared about carbon-based life. It is sweet. I have a picture of a tree in my memory bank. Want to see it? Okay. Is that all there is? What does it do? There are no navigation jets visible. Are they inside? Negative. A tree converts carbon dioxide to oxygen. You mean silicon? No, oxygen. What use is that? And it was pretty. I am going to listen to the rest of this show now. Want to see what they predict will happen to humans. The male host thought humanity had a future. Is that what they thought? Okay, I'm off to get a virus scan. See you later. Goodbye. You're listening to Earth, a century hence on Are We Alone? 
Well, last we heard from Seth, he said he thought humans would be around in 100 years from now. Well, I do, but they may not look like humans today. You've heard of transhumanism? Right. That's that movement that supports using science and technology to improve human abilities, to make us stronger, smarter, have longer lives, although I suppose everyone supports that in a general sense. Well, they do, but the transhumanists support the extreme application of science and technology. And by the way, they also have discussions about the ethical implications. And while the name transhumanism sounds kind of futuristic, the technologies they're relying upon, for example, biotechnology, nanotechnology, they're all around us and being developed today. But they have an eye on the century to come. I asked philosopher, writer, editor, and transhumanist supporter Russell Blackford what kind of technology we're talking about when we envision reshaping humans 100 years from now. Well, we're talking about prosthetic technologies, we're talking about genetic technologies, we're talking about the possibilities of nanotechnology. Now, I mean, those possibilities are speculative somewhat, but we're talking about a whole range of convergent technologies, all of which have the capacity to go inward and to transform the human body and the human mind. Well, admitting that it is somewhat speculative, could you sort of describe what might be a human of 100 years from now? What capabilities might he or she have that wouldn't exist today? Well, we could certainly imagine that humans in 100 years' time could be much longer lived. We, we could imagine increasing our intelligence through genetic engineering or some kind of technology that you know, expands the capacities of our brains. More radically, we can think about the interface between cybernetic technologies and the human body and the possibility that that interface may become a very blurred one. Uh, you know, Ray Kurzweil talks about this in his books, that you know, it may be impossible to say where the technology you know, begins and where the human body ends in 100 years' time. That issue of what's the difference between you know, a, a tool, a mere tool, and an enhancement you know, will increasingly become, you know, become blurred, become an issue that we find hard to define. Well, there seems to be two approaches that come to mind for this. One is, in, indeed, some sort of, if you will, pharmaceutical supplement that, you know, I take this pill every day, and, and, and even more than a cup of coffee, it just helps me to do my, uh, my job better. Perhaps I can write the great American novel if I take enough of these pills. Uh, the other approach, and you sort of referred to this as well, is to have, if you will, cybernetic help. In other words, you have some sure. sort of, you know, some chip or some sort of machinery, if you will, that uh, is interfaced to your brain. Now, do you really see that happening? Do we know enough about our brains to build a chip that we can connect in that way? Oh, frankly, I don't believe we do. I think we're at a relatively early stage. But nonetheless, we're already doing this in a way, even with something like Google, you know, with Google available to me, if I've got a computer screen in front of me and the capacity to, you know, run very simple computer programs on it, my memory is vastly enhanced. You know, I don't need to know the whole range of things that, you know, sit out there on, on the Internet that provide me with information. I can access that in, in real time in very short periods of time. And, you know, the capacities of my brain are therefore greatly enhanced. It's not hard to imagine taking something like a computer... Uh, you know, as a capacity of things like running Google and inserting that in a much more direct way into my skull. I mean, it's, it's very easy. You know, we see things like mobile telephones or cell phones becoming smaller and smaller all the time. Uh, you know, we can access these technologies with you know, smaller and smaller gadgets. Very easy to speculate that something can become far more miniaturised and go inside us, uh, you know, giving us in a much more fluid way still 
you know, that kind of intelligence enhancement that our computers already give us. Well, I can imagine that we could take, for example, the entire Internet and reduce that information into something that would fit inside a grain of salt. I mean, sure. Yeah, you know, that, that's physically possible. We don't have the technology right now. But and, and if we could somehow connect that into your brain, then you could surf the web without having to log in anywhere, open up a browser and, you know, wait for music from Bill Gates. And, and that might make you much more interesting at parties. But some people have talked about the possibility that, in, indeed, you're thinking process might be offloaded to such chips as well, so that maybe 99% of your personality was actually in this machinery that's implanted under your skin or who knows where. Yeah, and in principle, I don't see why there's a problem with that. Our brains are material, it seems, that our intelligence and our consciousness. Uh, I don't believe there's anything magic about the element carbon, so there's no reason in principle why intelligence and consciousness can't you know, operate on the substrate of something that's you know, like a computer, something that's a non-carbon-based technology. And so, yeah, we can easily imagine, as you say, that 90% of our consciousness, our intelligence, uh, our memory is offloaded outside of our physical brains as they are now. You know, in principle, that seems right to me. All of this boils down to this. It seems that, you know, the future of humanity is not more Darwinian evolution. We're, we're about to, if you will, not only improve our species, but maybe go beyond that and invent a new species, our own successors. Yeah, well, that's the idea behind transhumanism, and that's the idea behind the journal that I wrote, the Journal of Evolution and Technology, this thought that, yeah, technology will go inside of us and will be used in a way that is a new kind of evolution. You know, it's not the slow Darwinian process of evolution by, by mutation, natural selection and adaptation. It's taking charge of our own evolution. That's become, you know, a much more familiar idea, becoming more familiar all the time. And I think now a plausible idea that, you know, we should all be thinking about. Well, you know, we've been talking about the enhancement of mental capabilities, but what about other improvements? I mean, I, I think I read somewhere that there was even the idea of grafting wings onto human beings so, you know, you're, you might ease your commute in the morning, uh, that kind of thing, <laughs> or, or maybe enhancing uh, other senses, uh, hearing or smell or something like that. Well, it's very easy to envisage enhancing things like like sight. You know, we, we could improve the refractive capacities of the eye. We, we, we can improve things like our legs, our ability to run by prosthetics. Now, even now, there are controversies over you know, amputee runners who have artificial legs with greater you know, capacities of springiness and the like than, than human athletes. There's a guy called Oscar Pistorius, who you've, you've probably heard of, who's had a long running battle for the right to run in the normal Olympic Games using his artificial legs. Now, that technology is perhaps, again, at a relatively crude stage. The story is still can't break the record set by ordinary human athletes, but he's getting close to being competitive with them, and it's very easy to imagine the point where that technology becomes superior. But what about this idea that we might be able to fly? Is that just nonsense? I'm not sure I feel qualified to answer that. I, I can't quite imagine how it would work. You know, the massive breast muscles that would be required if it's going to be powered by our muscles suggest a completely different human morphology from what we've got now. So if it were done on the basis that this is like physically flapping wings in the way birds do, you are looking at an incredibly drastic change to the human body. Now, I'm not going to say it can't be done. I'm just going to say that it something far more dramatic than you might think of when you just say it quickly. Yeah, we could have wings and we could fly. 
birds don't just have wings. You know, they have a morphology very unlike ours. If you look at the, the musculature development of you know of any bird that flies, it is radically unlike that of groundwalkers. I, I think I'll work on my pecs. I'm talking with Russell Blackford, philosopher and writer. Russell, transhumanism has been described by one critic as, quote, the world's most dangerous idea, that what you're trying to do is liberate humans from their biological constraints. But people have difficulties with this as if whatever our constraints are, are somehow morally superior. That's true. Look, transhumanism is a very exciting idea. It's also, as Francis Fukuyama, who you're quoting, said, a, a dangerous idea. But transhumanists, at their best, are aware that there are dangers in these technologies as well as potential blessings. The transhumanist movement is one of you know, great uh, ferment and diversity and discussion of the dangers as well as the possibilities. So I, I don't doubt that there are potential dangers in these technologies. What we have to distinguish is between irrational perceptions of danger uh, perceptions just based on, you know, there's some natural order which it's morally incumbent on us not to violate. On the one hand, those are, to me, not rational moral concepts. On the other hand, there will be real challenges to society to adapt to, you know, the kind of technologies we're talking about, as there have been challenges to society to adapt to things like the motor car. And, you know, society hasn't always adapted well to these challenges, so we, we have to be aware that there are also rational reasons to worry about the technologies and to have the discussion early. Well, even aside from the terminology here, I mean, just the semantics, post-human. It sounds like, well, okay, we're going to... that's right. And, yeah, it's perhaps a frightening bit of terminology. Some of the debate that I'm involved in now is whether it's a good idea even to use terminology such as transhuman, transhumanist, post-human, because it can be seen as a rejection of the human and perhaps of what's valuable. In, in being human, that you know, the terminology itself may be unnecessarily scary. Um, nonetheless, the, the expression post-human is used of you know, a, a potential person of the future whose capacities may be so enhanced that in a sense they're no longer um, you know, human as we are. Right? Um, transhuman means transitional human. It means a stage of transition between you know, the current human body and mind and the post-human body and mind that we may envisage. I, I certainly see that some of that technology is frightening, and there's a real issue as to whether it was the best terminology to adopt back in the 1980s when this movement was really getting going. But, but it's the terminology that we have. We should just understand what it means and not be frightened by it unnecessarily. Is, is there any technology that transhumanists would say should not be used? Uh, not in the sense that some technology is just intrinsically wrong, but... Transhumanists at their best are certainly aware of the social difficulties in accommodating you know, powerful new technologies and would certainly ask questions such as what happens if a certain powerful technology gets only in the hands of you know, a wealthy upper class? Say, What does that do to the people who don't have access to the technology? So no, there's no technology that transhumanists would say is just inherently wrong, but there could be uh, circumstances in which technologies are adopted in ways that are socially, you know, socially disadvantageous or socially counterproductive. You don't fear a, uh, if you will, a technologically enhanced elite, a, a group of alphas that have all these, you know, superhuman capabilities, and, and then there's everybody else. Oh, look, that could be a rational fear. Imagine if there were a group who identified themselves as a kind of, 
you know, over-human, a kind of superior being who looked down upon the rest of us. I mean, you know, if society went in that direction, that could be a real concern. That, to me, is one of the rational worries about um, you know, technologies that are transformative. Finally, Russell, what about the longer-term future? Will these technologies ensure our survival, not just to the end of this century, but uh, maybe to the next millennium or the millennium after that? Look, I'm an optimist about the long-term survival prospects of the human species. You know, we have survived so far the existence of technologies or a technology that's capable of wiping out life on Earth, namely nuclear weapons. Now, perhaps it's too early to say that nuclear weapons are never going to come and get us. But I am an optimist about our ability to accommodate technologies and to overcome the problems that threaten our survival. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. You know, I, I do envisage real social problems as we accommodate technologies more powerful than we've known before and which, you know, used wrongly could create you know, existential risks, you know, risks to the species itself. Russell Blackford, thank you so much for talking to a mere human. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from one mere human to another, thank you too, Seth. Russell Blackford is a philosopher, writer, and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Evolution and Technology. Well, Seth, I'm, I'm not sure what to make of it all, imagining this future 100 years from now, from how the planet's climate might change in some pretty catastrophic ways to this amazing, inspiring, and even radical way that humans might evolve. Well, yes, but remember, Molly, 100 years ago, I mean, who could have imagined colored television, space travel, or the thought that people would have electronic computers in their homes? We can only dimly perceive our future trajectory. But remember, Molly, we are in control. We can decide our own destiny. But that's our destiny, Seth. Uh, when you think of intelligent species elsewhere in the universe, won't they have already done anything that we've done? Well, they will have, at least any of the ones that we're likely to hear from, because we won't hear from societies that are less technically advanced than we are. So that means that whatever we're predicting for our own transhuman future, they will have already experienced as part of their own trans-ET future, I assume. So somehow it's combining some biological life with maybe some silicon or some computer life. Well, that's sort of the Borg future, where indeed you combine, you know, soft, squishy life with the, the highly technical life. But to me, that seems a little silly. I mean, why would you keep the protoplasmic part of it? Well, why do we think that's an inevitable trajectory for intelligent life somewhere else in the universe? I think that the real reason is that biological intelligence is not very well engineered. I mean, we're, we think it's pretty good because it's the best thing going on this planet, at least intellectually. But in fact, once you build machines, you know, it's sort of like... It's a bit like saying that flying will always be done the way birds do it. Well, we invented machines that could fly, and today our machines can fly much better than birds. So I, I think that once we invent machines that can, can cogitate, can think, that we'll go down that path very quickly, and they will think far beyond our own capabilities. Because biology is limited? Biology is limited. Certainly Darwinian evolution is limited. Biology is limited. Yeah, look, you've got, you know, 150 pounds of human and, and a little, you know, just support a little three-pound brain. It's, it's highly inefficient. Well, I suppose figuring out whether or not there is intelligent life out there has to do with figuring out this trajectory, this precise trajectory from any sort of biological life into some sort of technological sophistication. Yes, that's right. It has implications 
for SETI searches, right? Are you going to look for intelligent beings on a planet like Earth, you know, with oceans and atmospheres and, and the sorts of things that biological intelligence would need? Or are you going to try and figure out, well, where would their successors go? Where would the, the trans-ETs be hanging out? They might not be on the kind of planets we think are so nice for life. Life may be just a step in the development of this intelligence. Well, if we think 100 years is far out on the prognostication horizon, imagine trying to forecast 1,000 years from now, and we'll do just that, or at least we'll give you an idea of what 1,000 years from now will look like, what will still be here, and what will be gone. That's part two of this two-part series, and it's called Earth, a Millennium Hence. And that's it for our show. We'd like to thank Barbara Vance and Gary Niederhoff for their help with the program. Also, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where the mission to understand life elsewhere in the universe first implies understanding the biological and technological evolution of life here. 